Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, I'd like to inform all participants that today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. You've been placed in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's call. At that time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1. Please make sure that your phone is unmuted and record your name and affiliation when prompted. I would now like to turn the call over to your host, Mr. Christopher Sands, Director of the Canada Institute at the Wilson Center. Thank you, sir. You may begin. Thank you, operator, and welcome, everyone. Um, this is uh, an event that we called uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek E Pluribus Aluminum from the many disputes that the federal government and the Trump administration have had over trade through softwood lumber, uh, dairy, steel, uh, and, of course, the renegotiation of NAFTA that led us to FMCA. It, it has been a rather contentious uh, four years, and now as we approach the U.S. election in 2020, aluminum is back with the U.S. reimposing 232 so-called national security tariffs under the U.S. Trade Expansion Act 1962 on Canadian aluminum. Here to discuss the nature of the dispute, the motivations behind the dispute, and, and also where we may go from here, we have three terrific experts. Daniel Yutso, who is a practice group chair uh, for international and regional work at Dickinson Wright PLLC, a law firm with offices in Toronto, uh, Detroit, Columbus, Ohio, and many parts of North America, perhaps the most Canada-U.S. law firm uh, in this space that exists. Um, John Johnson is our second speaker. Uh, John is a former partner at Goodman's LLP, so also a lawyer, uh, and currently a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. John is out this morning with a uh, policy memo from C.D. Howe uh, discussing this very issue, and you'll be able to find a link to that on our uh, event website, uh, but you can also find it through the C.D. Howe Institute directly. Third, our third speaker is Christine McDaniel. Uh, she is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University here in uh, in the D.C. area. She's also um, a former lawyer with the Sidley and Austin firm, a member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, a Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury Department in the United States, and has worked at different times in her career for the U.S. Department of Commerce, the U.S. Trade Representative, and the U.S. International Trade Commission. Uh, so uh, three speakers, each of whom brings a different perspective. I asked Dan Yutso to start because, among other things, Dan is based in Ohio, where President Trump made his announcement of these new tariffs. Dan, let me turn the uh, discussion over to you. Well, well, thank you, and uh, good afternoon, and it's it's great to be on a good old-fashioned conference call here. I almost forgot what just the conference call was, as the default seems to be everything's on video these days, which I'm not a huge fan of being a bigger guy with big nose, big ears. I'm not the most telegenic person, so it, it's wonderful that you're lending your ears and not your eyes today, and uh, so thank you for your time. I'm, it's great to be here in comfy clothes and a ball cap. Um, and in fact, it's a Columbus Blue Jackets ball cap for our friends in Toronto. Um, don't 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 at me. Don't don't hate me. Just enjoy August without the NHL playoffs. Um, but I do thank all of you for your most precious resource, your time. And Chris, I know time is of the essence, but I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, just say what a privilege it is to be here with Christine and and with John. Christine uh, both have you know extensive and extraordinary experience and expertise, and on. 
Christine sides. I'm actually getting off this call to do a consultation with a client on 232s. I think I've filed more exclusions than I can count and met with members of Congress and uh, always use Christine's data as my cheat sheet. So you probably need to send me an invoice, uh, Christine. But uh, And then John Johnson and Chris, you styled him as legendary this morning in your tweet. And I would not only echo that, but a better uh, mentor and friend. Uh, I've known John for more than 20 years, dating back to our days at the Canada-U.S. Law Institute. And of course, uh, Chris, we're back in action here. So it, it feels a little bit like a family reunion today. So just turning to the subject matter at hand, you know, I, I know it's almost become cliche to say, here we go again. Uh, but I'll, I'll use that banner uh, just for my comments today, but uh, in a, perhaps a different way than others that are saying, here we go again with tariffs or Trump or, you know, Trudeau versus Trump, et cetera. And really say, here we go again in Canada, U.S., because I think we're starting to see the same, doing the same things again and expecting a different result. And we all know uh, that's a definition of a, of a certain mental state. And so if you can allow me just to say three things, and the first is, is more of a soapbox issue, admittedly, and then I'll turn to some very specific examples on the ground. But number one is before we talk about the targets and tariffs and tone and tenor Trump versus Trudeau, tactics and theatrics. Let's talk about title trade. We cannot lose sight of the fact that Canada-U.S. is the best trading relationship around, and the tide comes every, every, and every day, and it comes out. I've worked in the U.S. government, the Canadian government, as you said. I've had the privilege to chair over the course of the last decade one of the Canada-U.S. practices on, on the planet at Dickinson Wright, uh, big companies, small companies, and this relationship works. And there's no better evidence of that than right now. We're in the middle of, pand of a pandemic, and trade is flowing across our borders uh, relatively well. And that was not true a decade and change ago after 9-11. And there was a lot of work done, painstaking work, uh, a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth during that time as we readjusted our borders. But the lesson is it works, and we're living that right now. Now, we still need some work to do on travel and tourism. But instead of just throwing up our hands and saying, here we go again, and using let's diversify as deflection for the fact that we can't get this trading relationship right between our two countries, the fact is we have to buckle down and get it right. Um, and I think USMCA, Kuzma, TMAC is a great example of that, too. I know it gets bashed on trade Twitter, uh, but I'm working with companies every day, and we're finding a lot of good news in this trade agreement. And if we use it, this will actually position North America uh, for a stronger recovery as we come out of COVID-19. I know a lot of folks are talking about a North American rebound. I don't want a rebound coming out of this. We need to dunk the ball. Uh, we need to put some points on the board. And I think uh, if we can do those things and moving forward and use them, so but we just have to buckle down and do the hard work. And just because we don't like who's in the Oval Office or who's in the Prime Minister's office doesn't mean we give up on this relationship. And so that's my soapbox moment. Now, Giving that perspective on the ground, you mentioned Clyde, Ohio, Whirlpool. The president's there a couple of weeks ago or a week or so ago, uh, not too far from where I am in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. I'm actually staring at five Whirlpool products in my home right now, in my kitchen and laundry room. So I'm a big believer in the company. But the president comes here. But let's just take a scenario, and here's where I'll kind of leave it here. Um, I take a dozen people out after that rally, and we go get chicken and chicken wings and beer, a couple beers, sodas, et cetera, afterwards in a properly social distance way, sitting outside with masks on, 
Nobody has vulnerable families at home, so please don't at me about that. But we're all hanging out with about a dozen of us after the rally. And the first thing we say is, man, can you, see, can you believe the president said Thailand instead of Thailand? Um, and four people immediately defend the president. Four people immediately call him an idiot and every other name in the book, and four people sit there quietly. And that's the state of politics in Ohio and I think around the country today when these topics come up. But after we talk for about a half an hour about our kids going back to school and granny and grandpa at the nursing home and all of the life issues we're dealing with right now in this current environment, trying not to be a geek, I say, can you believe the president's putting tariffs on Canada again? And, guys, he, he said this. He's standing in front of boxes at Whirlpool that are in English, Spanish, and French because Whirlpool sells these products, <laughs> and it's a North American supply chain. All of these products, including the five I'm looking at right now, all have aluminum in them. And, you know, folks, we had about two dozen aluminum production facilities in the U.S. about 10 years ago. It's down to about a half a dozen, a little bit more than that. And we just don't make enough aluminum in this country. And where are we going to get it from? Like, if the president puts tariffs on this, we've got to get it from China or Russia. Like, do we really care that Canada? Is Canada our problem? And, you know, look, the Canadian companies that are making it, one of them is Alcoa. They're a unionized, they're a company that has operations here in the Midwest as well, headquartered in Pittsburgh, not too far from where we are. Like, is Canada really a threat to all of us? And I guarantee you all 12 people around that table will say, yeah, this is crazy. Hey, we don't need tariffs on Canada. We don't care. Canada's our ally. There's no national security threat there. And four of them will say, yeah, but it's the president. At least he's doing something. The other four will say, yeah, see, he never gets it right. This is all for show. This is all politics. And candidly, the other four, even though they agree, are going to do nothing. And, I mean, I think that's the issue right now. There's no amount of data. And we can make all of the cases we want that's really going to move the needle on this in the U.S. It may be pure politics. Um, one of the two companies that's producing, and I think John's going to talk more about this, but is located in Kentucky. There's a Senate race with Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath, right? There's another company in Missouri. And that brings me to the second point. But none of those people are going to get energized all of a sudden. And I can say, wow, this is going to raise the cost of that beer can or this pop can or the cost of my car, $800, and people will say, well, it didn't do it last time. Right? There's not a lot of energy around this politically. So this is a heavy lift to try to get these tariffs removed. But I'll add an, uh, just a final element to it. So the guy at the end of the table says to me, well, wait a minute. One of those companies is in Missouri, right? My brother-in-law used to work at an aluminum smelter that was shut down there. And the company, that company closed. They laid off about 800 people. But there's a new company stood, was stood up there. It's one of those two companies that's complaining. Um, and they hired about 400 people, including my brother-in-law. You know, the only reason those folks still have their job are those aluminum tariffs. And that's exactly the case. That's what's going on on the ground out there in Missouri with one of these two companies. And now I'm sitting at a table with 12 people from Whirlpool where we just left a rally where the, they just cheerleaded the president because he put tariffs on a few years ago on their washers and dryers, right, and, and arguably saved their jobs. Right? And so a lot of those people say, well, hey, look, Canada's not the problem. We're not going to be motivated to do too much here. So I just raised that to say those are all the arguments, and I think we'll hear more in just a moment, but no data is going to fix this. 
and no dramatics because really there are two sides to this story. I don't think the, the U.S. side is very compelling compared to the Canadian side. Canada's got a very strong position here. But at the end of the day, it's not going to move the needle. We don't need data. We don't need dramatics. We need a deal. And the deal needs to be between industry is to figure out what we can do um, to fix this problem. And I know industry was working on that up until now, but we didn't get there. And if not, once retaliation starts by Canada, you know, we're in the political season. And so, you know, I know the U.S. Chamber and countless others, and there's going to be attempts to raise some money and go meet with candidates and, and, and politicians running and those types of things and maybe stick it into one of the spending bills or do something. But the reality is that's going to be a huge lift because nobody on the ground is making their decisions right now. They agree with Canada's position but they're not making their political decisions, your average voter, on, on that basis. And so the likelihood is if this continues, it's going to continue past the election into the lame duck and maybe into the new administration, whichever side that is. So I just want to give that perspective that this is a heavy lift once these tariffs are, have been imposed or will be within the next couple of days. Uh, and there's going to have to be a lot of work. And if I was targeting anybody on that deal, Yes, big business should be out there about raising the cost, but you've got to get in front of labor and those other organizations that have the eyes and ears of both the Trump White House and Democrats. Because if you're not talking to those folks, you might as well save your breath. And so with that, uh, Chris, I'll just turn it back to you and, and, and over, perhaps over to John. Thanks. Thanks very much, Dan. And, and I think that's very helpful in establishing sort of where we get started. And I, I'd like to be around that table having a, having a beer or a, a soda with you, socially distanced, of course, because you make that discussion come alive very, very well. And if that tells us how we got here, uh, maybe I can now turn to John Johnson to talk about where we go from here, and in particular what the reaction from Canada has been and, and may be. John? Uh, Chris, thank you very much. Uh, Dan, uh, it, it has been at least 20 years. Um, I first became aware of Section 232 in an article that was published by the Peterson Institute a few years ago, uh, outlining all the actions that Trump could take to make life, dif life difficult for U.S. trading partners. And one of those was Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. As things have turned out, this has become a favored tool of the Trump administration with eight investigations since Trump took office as compared to 26 investigations from 1962 to 2001, and there haven't been any investigations uh, since 2001. So it really has been resurrected. And um, the first investigation um, was self-initiated by the Department of Commerce respecting steel and aluminum. And it resulted in the imposition of 25% tariffs on steel and 10% tariffs on aluminum. We were exempt for a very short period of time, but ultimately Canadian steel and aluminum became subject to these tariffs on June 1, 2018. Now, the existence of these tariffs became a significant obstacle to completing the Kuzma negotiations. But uh, the, the negotiations took place between the U.S. and Canada. And through a joint statement dated May 17, 2019, Canada and the U.S. announced an end to these tariffs. 
as well as to retaliatory measures that the Canadians had taken, subject to certain caveats. Now, one of the caveats was that the tariffs could be reimposed if imports, imports of a product into the U.S. surged over historical levels. Imports into the U.S. from Canada of non-alloyed unwrought aluminum over the 12-month period from June 2019 to May 2020 did increase substantially over imports for the previous 12-month period. Now, that is a relatively important product um, in the aluminum scheme of things. However, if you go back a number of years, the trade figures really are all over the map. They were up like 2017 was much higher, uh, 2016 somewhat lower. But certainly as you compare those two 12-month periods, there was, there was an increase. Now, of course, that increase was simply because U.S. consumers of this product were ordering more. It had nothing to do with any any uh, malfeasance on the part of Canada, as Trump seemed to uh, have suggested. The uh, joint statement provided the consultation should, should took place in this instant. Uh, the U.S. requested consultations, and um, the uh, they obviously were unsuccessful. And with the Kuzma barely a month old, the U.S. announced that it would reimpose 10% tariffs on that particular aluminum product starting uh, April uh, 16. Um, again, the title of my uh, C.D. Howard piece is Bait and Switch, and um, we negotiated an end of these things as a, as a as a means as one means of getting the Kuzma through, and uh, now they've been reimposed, and Kuzma has been barely alive. Now, Canada announced that it will impose a 10% surtax on aluminum products imported from the U.S. There's a long list of products. They haven't decided which ones, but those tariffs will start on, um, on uh, September 16. So there we are with re retaliation. And again, where does retaliation go? You can argue under the joint statement we're entitled to do this. We probably are. But if the U.S. further retaliates and then we further retaliate, we're into the downward spiral that uh, uh, you have when you have any of these trade wars, and it really gets nobody anywhere. Now, so where does this leave us? Uh, firstly, um, deal trade between Canada and the U.S. Is, is relatively evenly balanced. However, Canada exports more aluminum products to the U.S. than does U.S. to Canada. However, there's a reason for this. Aluminum production requires massive amounts of economically priced electricity. Quebec and B.C. have the capability of generating vast amounts of hydropower. Very few U.S. jurisdictions have this uh, capability, and many rely on coal. And somebody has made the observation, and Dan mentioned uh, Kentucky. Um, uh, the Kentucky smelters rely on coal generation, which has its climate issues as well as cost. And Quebec and B.C. rely exclusively on hydropower, which is constant and clean. So, again, there's a significant uh, production advantage and economic advantage 
to producing aluminum in Canada. Again, there are very few places that really are economic to produce aluminum for that reason, and Canada happens to be one of them. Now, Kuzma, what does Kuzma have to say about this? Well, it does have something to say about this, but it's not very helpful. Kuzma has an essential security uh, provision, and and Section 232 actions would be based on that. Back in the, in, if you look at the NAFTA security exception, it, it's limited. The, the country can do whatever it likes to protect its security, but only under three circumstances. And the three circumstances are respecting traffic and arms, war or other emergency and in international relations, or nuclear proliferation. The CUSMA security exceptions uh, is not subject to any of these limitations and is self-judging. So, yes, Kuzma does have something to say about it, but unfortunately it's not very helpful. Now, there were hopes that the U.S. courts would uh, rein in, limit, or possibly eliminate Section 232. The American Institute for International Steel challenged Section 232 as authorizing an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power to the president. The the arguments were compelling, and they they actually achieved a degree of success in in that they got one Court of International Trade uh, judge to almost decide in their favor. But ultimately, uh, it it went through the system. The U.S. Supreme Court had a chance to uh, consider it, and they chose not to. And the fact that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court took a pass on this suggests to me that a success, successful judicial challenge probably won't happen anytime soon. Now, Congress, um, individual members of Congress, quite a few of them, have objected strongly to Section 232 tariffs, and various bills have introduced to limit its application. Now, there was one time years ago that uh, Congress did limit the application of Section 232, uh, but that only applied and continues to apply with respect to uh, actions against petroleum. There are no constraints that Congress imposes on any other sector, and while a number of members of Congress initiated bills, filed bills, and so on, none of these has been uh, successful. In fact, Senator Chuck Grassley stated recently that he didn't see any chance of legislation reigning in Section 232 passing. Now, of course, the, the, the one other possibility is the WTO. In the early stages of Section 232 uh, tariffs, uh, WTO, uh, the WTO appellate body was still functional. It is not functional now and is not likely to become so for for, uh, quite some time, if ever. So the WTO is not a route to uh, dealing with this issue. Now, I guess guess I've been involved in rules of origin and auto issues, and, 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 and one of the incredibly aggravating things is that the Kuzma rules of origin have an aluminum purchase requirement. In fact, 70% of an auto producer's purchases of steel and aluminum must be originating for the vehicle to be, for the vehicle to qualify, to qualify as originating and be eligible for duty-free treatment. 
So, however, what this does is that the new, now Section 232 tariffs on Canadian aluminum put a penalty on U.S. auto producers for using Canada as a source of this particular aluminum product, which, again, is an important one. Uh, that, I think, is just incredibly aggravating. It strikes me as being a purely protectionist measure, and it, it certainly undermines any credibility that any of this has to do with national security. Now, as we'll, what will happen, Dan made some comments about what happens after this. I guess it's fairly clear to people in Canada is that if Trump gets back in, this situation and these tariffs uh, will, will simply continue. Now, if Biden wins, it's, it's a different matter. Um, there's nothing in Biden's uh, uh, literature or uh, things that he has said, or things on his website, it suggests any leniency on the uh, on the trade front, um, and the Democrats may have difficulty with this. I think one of the key things, however, that a, a new uh, U.S. administration will want to do is mend fences with uh, with trade partners, uh, with allies like Canada, and this is, I think, uh, an extremely important fence to mend. So there may be some hope there. This is a rather gloomy picture that I've painted, but unfortunately, I think that is the situation as we see it. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, John. And, and I think um, one of the things that I've always valued about your analysis is that you you don't sugarcoat things, but you don't go overboard in the uh, in the other direction either. And so it may not be what we want to hear, but I think it's, a, as always, an insightful and accurate read on how on the situation that we're in. I want to turn now to, to Christine McDaniel. Uh, Christine, you've been on the uh, the government side. You're on the private side now. You, you've written a lot on uh, 232 and the exclusion process. Um, is there a way forward, and uh, how do you see things unfolding in, in the weeks to come? Oh, thank you. And I just want to say thank you to the Wilson Center for hosting this event and thank you to um, Christopher Sands for moderating. And so nice to be here with John Johnson and Dan So It's uh, nice to, to be on the call with you guys as well. Um, a way forward, well, yes, there's always a way forward. <laughs> um, a lot is up in the air right now, for sure. And, you know, it's, I, I don't want to just repeat what um, – my colleagues here have said um, I, there's nothing I disagree with, really. Um, you know, I'm an economist, not a political scientist, so I'll leave the politics aside. Um, although I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, if you look to see who's actually behind the aluminum tariffs, um, you know, it's this company called Century Aluminum. And as I think Dan pointed out, one of their smelters is in Kentucky. Um, or two of them, I think, are in Kentucky, but one is in South Carolina. And guess who else is up for re-election this year from South Carolina? Anyway, I'll let, I'll let you guys do the political calculus on that. Um, but anyway, in terms of the economics, um, the, um, and I, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying the downstream effects of trade policy instruments. And over the past uh, couple of years, of course, um, looking at tariff exclusion requests and the um, 
on the 232 side and the, and the 301 side as well, the project exclusion request. But in terms of the 232 exclusion request um, process, you know, we have found that, uh, and we make all of our data public at the Mercatus Center, um, but we are, you know, we find that the exclusion process has um, been limited in its original intent, which you will recall, you know, it was to minimize undue impact on downstream industries. And there are, I think, ways to modify the tariff exclusion process to um, help the, uh, to, to facilitate um, the ability of, of commerce to, um, for the for the 232 exclusion process to achieve its goals, and we have um, I've discussed this in a um, in a public comment to commerce. Uh, and you know, one thing you find and um, is that the um, the well, economists you know we study incentives a lot, right? And uh, and um, so seeing the data, and then I always like to talk to some of the manufacturers and the producers, you know, aluminum and steel producers and the manufacturers who are trying to get the exclusions just to make sure I I understand what I think the data are telling me. Um, but, you know, the, the way the process has been set up um, is, you know, really puts the uh, – gives, gives a lot of leverage to the um, – to producers, the steel and aluminum producers, and, and very little – to the manufacturers that are trying to get the exclusion, and uh, the um, you know filing an objection is nearly costless for a producer, but it has real consequences for the importer, you know, for the manufacturer. At the, at the very least, it leads to a delay during which time, of course, the manufacturer and the importer must pay the tariff, um, and then if you look at the data in terms of approvals and denials. The vast, vast, uh, over 95% of those exclusion requests that are approved had no objection, um, and and there are a few other characteristics as well. But the objection makes a big difference in the outcome. And with the process the way it's set up now, the um, you know, and that's that's even if it is withdrawn. You know, I, I hear some people say, well, yeah, we file a lot of objections up front, but then we withdraw them. You know, well, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I get that. If I, you know, worked for a steel or aluminum company, I would probably do the same thing. It makes perfect sense. I can slow everything down and buy you some time. And um, But this is it within Commerce's purview uh, to modify the system to minimize these excessive objection filings, right? Because what we found is that Producers are, have been objecting to unrealistic quantities. So if you if you add up all the, all the volume uh, of steel or here aluminum that uh, that producers have objected to, it far exceeds their annual production capacity. So the fact that these objections are unrealistic and they're so consequential, they lead to delays. Um, it it's, it um it does raise concerns on the ability of the tariff exclusion process to achieve its original goal, which was to minimize undue impact on downstream industries. We've seen that in steel, and we've seen that in aluminum, 
and we're seeing that here, of course, um, you know, in, in, in uh, this U.S., we'll see this again and uh, play out, you know, moving forward here as well. So I'll leave it there. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christine. Um, and uh, I want to remind all of our, our listeners that you can join the conversation asking a question. Just hit star one on your phone and you'll be put into the queue. Um, ask you to introduce yourself and, and give your question to our very expert panel. Um, and I I wonder if, if I could just open up with a question about um, Canada as a player in the aluminum sector versus aluminum from other parts of the world. Is, uh, is Canadian aluminum uh, of particular importance in this market, and are there other international markets that Canadian aluminum uh, is, uh, can go to if it doesn't come to the United States because of these price uh, differentials? Um, would any of you have any thoughts on, on Canadian aluminum, the options, and, and maybe the significance of aluminum within the U.S. market? Well, I, I can say one thing about Canada is a major aluminum producer. And again, it, it goes back to the availability of, uh, of hydroelectric power. Um, Quebec, uh, with the James Bay project, created a massive capability to produce uh, hydroelectric power forever. And it's economical, and um, that's one of the reasons there are smelters in Quebec, and similarly, Kitabat uh, in British Columbia, I believe what they did was they tunneled a, a great tunnel through a mountain, diverted a river into it, put in a hydro generators there, and again, that's another place where you have virtually unlimited hydropower, because that is absolutely essential to the economic uh, production of aluminum. Iceland, for example, is also a major producing, producer of aluminum for exactly the same reason. You don't take the ore to – the key thing is the electricity, and that's what we have. We have other markets for aluminum, and this isn't, this isn't necessarily going to kill us, but it's, a, it's an immense aggravation, and it's particularly aggravating because of the, um, because of the uh, um, situation with autos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, Dan, on the situation on automotive, how important is, auto, is aluminum for automotive? You talked to us a little bit about Whirlpool and – and the home appliance sector, but uh, but it, in a place like Ohio, there's also obviously both aerospace and automotive. Um, are those other sectors uh, also hurting? And do you think you'd see an auto pushback, or you know, from General Motors or Ford or, or others that might start getting attention in Washington? Oh, absolutely. I mean, aluminum is a key piece of of the automotive aerospace, it's all about lightweighting. I mean, that's the world in which we're living, and it's about aluminum and magnesium. And let's face it, the United States has both special tariffs and dumping countervailing duties on it. It's really hard to bring aluminum in from anywhere else around the world, magnesium as well. I believe at one point the idea, the economics, Christine may know better than I was, that it would the steel and aluminum tariffs would raise the price of the average uh, North American-made automobile about anywhere between $800 to $1,200. Uh, and in a market right now, that's um, that's really hurting. Uh, and, and I think that's a big difference between now and when these came in in 2018. I mean, one of the, the, the more optimistic points is 
you know, your, your voter here in Ohio and, and throughout the United States, and keep in mind this isn't just a blue collar. I mean, it's often in, in the trade Twitterverse that it's only a bunch of folks and that grew up working in steel mills like I did that were supportive of tariffs. It's, it's a lot of people, um, including small and medium-sized business owners that um, for the last 15 years have been saying we're sick of competing around the world with countries that cheat and then back home we're playing by the rules here. Um, and so there's a lot of support, but I think co- co- companies and people were willing to give the president a long leash when the economy was good and um, in order to just do something. You know, people have been hearing for too long, wait for the WTO or wait for our allies. People wanted to, and President Trump intuitively understood in 2016 that action trumped assessment, authenticity trumped accuracy. That was his, his playbook. Um, I think that calculus is very different in 2020. The economy's hurting. Um, he's already got his deal with Canada. I think people are like, okay, you can use tariffs to go get your deal. Uh, but he's got his deal with Canada, and John laid out USMCA. I mean, there's 70% uh, requirements. And I think one of the things where you will see companies start to react is if Canada is retaliating and they were expecting duty-free treatment like on furniture coming, uh, you know, from, from your old backyard, Chris, in, in that state north of Ohio where we make a lot of uh, furniture in western Michigan. Um, and places like that where people were expecting duty-free treatment all of a sudden have to pay for this. But my expectation is that runway is a little bit longer than between now and November. And again, I'd leave it to the economist because I think there were a lot of warnings that, that prices would go up with aluminum, but people didn't see it the last time around. It really never trickled down to the consumer in a, in a real way. Um, and I think that's true of, frankly, all the tariffs. We never really got to feel that pain point because it was, you know, intermediate products felt it. But um, I just don't think your average consumer is going to vote on that right now. Right. So I think it's a much longer runway. But for the industry, absolutely, it's a huge issue. Uh, and they're going to be motivated and talking to their members of Congress about it in the lead up to, to, to 2020. So that may be where there is some optimism. I just don't know if it's going to be enough to move the needle. Christine, um, what, what, what's your sense of this? Yeah, look, I, I think what Dan said was right. Um, you know, if you just look at the, the labor data, there, um, there's about 177 Americans who work in aluminum-consuming industries for every one person that works in aluminum-producing <laughs> industry, right? So, um, but like like Dan said, I mean, it's you get these um, the costs are really spread out and dispersed, while the you know the um, the benefits are felt you know and very you know notably for the aluminum producer here, um, just like the the um, the economic effects of um, quote unquote unfair competition. Uh, you know those those uh, costs were also um, highly concentrated, while the benefits were were um, wide and dispersed. So you know, this is their typical political economy of trade issue, um, and we're seeing it play out here as well. So yeah, I mean you know I, we can talk about the economics um, all day. I mean it's a very clear case, but um, but politically um, you know that may carry more water. Uh, but when things go really south in terms of economics, I mean, the, the simplest way, it's going to be really hard not to take these tariffs off, right, because that, that will just be an, an immediate tax cut to U.S. manufacturing taking taking off these 232 tariffs. Yeah, you know, I grew up, you know, in northern Illinois, and I remember 
in Rockford, Illinois, where a lot of nail companies, uh, nail um, producers were, and they used to complain about um, cheap nails coming in from China and all this. A lot of jobs were lost. A lot of those shops closed down. But then around, I don't know, the early 2000s or so, um, different types of um, nail uh, producers started popping up um, in the region. You know, and one was Mid-Continental Nails, right? And what you know, what these guys did is they said, okay, you know, we we get it. We're, we can um, we we are not going to have the same business model we used to. And so American Ingenuity at work, they figured out how to take advantage of cheap or globally competitive priced uh, steel and metals and use their close proximity to uh, U.S. manufacturers and manufacturers here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, they really made a go of it and they became not only uh, competitive but globally competitive, right? So, um, so change is constant and change is painful. But American manufacturers, American businesses evolve. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. And, you know, and we've seen again and again, you know, you can try to save one company, uh, but you're going to end up hurting a lot more. It's much better just to let that one company take the hit and, and then let the rest of the economy, you know, find its way forward because they always do. They always will. It just takes time. You know, now Midcontinental, here they were, you know, they thought they had figured out a way to survive and compete and really uh, outperform, you know, their counterparts in the global economy. And now with these steel and aluminum tariffs, um, you know, it, it, it really puts a, a you know, a, a buckle in their in their um in their business model. And so um you know, I it's just it's just American ingenuity. It's you know, and tariffs are a lazy way to to deal with um you know, with unfair trade practices. I like you know, like what Dan was saying, that, you know, yes, it, it would have been nice if the, the tariffs would have worked in terms of getting some leverage with our you know, on, on some of these issues that are real for sure. Um, but it doesn't really look like it is working. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what happens um, with, you know, well, in November, of course, uh, and if Trump stays in, well, we know he loves tariffs, um, you know, just give him a reason. I mean, in a way, 2020 hindsight, you know, I have to wonder what was Canada thinking when they agreed to those safeguard provisions, right? I mean, here you have a president who loves tariffs, just give him a reason. And if you read that language, Canada really signed on to something pretty vague. Um, uh, and, you know, what the, the uh, commerce says, those imports of aluminum went up by 87%. They haven't, I haven't really seen a list of those particular HTS codes where they calculated that from. You see the dates. It was, you know, um, 18, what was it, May to June, or June, you know, May to June, 18 to 19, and then May to June, 19 to 20. Um, but somebody in commerce must have really been watching those um, tariffs, that, those import data, uh, week by week, because the second that hit a particular threshold, um, you know, they were just all too ready to 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 do those tariffs, and you know, it, it made sense for for uh, appear apparently for non-economic reasons as well. Um, but um, but when you've got you know a president that likes tariffs, I think you have to really think twice before you um, 
you know, and, and really read the fine print before you sign the dotted line. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I appreciate I appreciate especially your sense that, you know, having faith in American ingenuity, uh, not only a patriotic, but kind of a, a feel-good idea about America is actually not what we're doing. We're actually acting as though the Americans need protection because they can't possibly adapt. And I think that that argument would have greater resonance, but uh, very well said, Christine. We have a call from one of our listeners, a question from one of our listeners, Mr. Robert DeFrancesco, and I'll take this opportunity to remind you all uh, in the audience, if you hit star one on your phone, you can join the queue. But now let's turn to Mr. DeFrancesco to ask his question. Uh, great. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, I guess this question is for the panel, and some of you have touched on it um, a little earlier, in fact, just recently, about the, the agreement um, that uh, is part of a return for USMCA or pushing USMCA through. There was the side agreement on the 232 where Canada agreed uh, not to surge uh, volume, aluminum volume into the U.S., and then over that period, I think one of the panelists was wondering about which HTS number was covered. It's uh, 760110 was the product that surged. Uh, and so that was uh, unalloyed, uh, unwrought, uh, unalloyed aluminum. And so it, I don't think there's any question that it did surge. And so the question I have for the panel is, if this is a side agreement as part of USMCA and trading partners are to hold each other accountable uh, to rights and obligations under those agreements, if there is a violation of the agreement, shouldn't the United States have taken action uh, as is their right under the agreement? Uh, and it seems like they should. And just as, a, as an aside about electricity, so while this surge is going on, one of the smelters that was shut down, which is in Calco in Washington State, that uses hydroelectric power. And because of the surge and the collapse of pricing as a result of the surge, they just couldn't compete anymore. So it would seem to me that the U.S. is simply enforcing its rights under the agreement, just as if the Canadians can enforce their rights under some other portion of the USMCA. So I'm a little – I'd like to hear the, the panel talk about, um, you know, why they think, uh, you know, not enforcing rights and obligations under an agreement is a, is a good thing. But before we lose you, Mr. DeFrancesco, we did ask you to let us know if you have an affiliation you want to share, because I'm impressed at how well you know the HS numbers. Um, can you share uh, where you're calling Perfect. from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a partner at uh, Wiley Ryan. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much. Um, he poses a good question. Uh, this is the letter of the agreement, and um, and the U.S. has is, is got some, some basis. Um, I'm going to start with Christine. You've um, you've been on all sides of this at USDOC and and also at ITC and so on and so forth. What do you make of this argument? Before I turn it over to yeah. the lawyers, uh. <laughs> the attorney at Wiley Ryan has a very good point. Um, and um, absolutely, if if um, countries um, design these these side agreements and sign to them then um, they shouldn't be surprised when one country wants to enforce it. Um, and, you know, we are definitely in an age of enforcing, enforcement uh, focus and, enforce, and, and concentrating on those efforts. So, yes, uh, absolutely, we should not be surprised that, um, that the U.S., particularly this administration, 
um, took action uh, because it was within their rights, if you read the fine print in the agreement, um, to do so. I think some of the shock, though, was just that it was done so abruptly and, and um, you know, without um, trying to figure out what was causing the surge and trying to work that out. Um, the, um, but, um, but, you know, you're right. If, if, a, if countries agree to particular side agreements, then they shouldn't be surprised when uh, one country wants to uphold it. Um, well, that's a good economic argument. But, uh, John Johnson, uh, what, what, what's your take on it as a trade lawyer? Well, when we're talking about, <clears throat> about the agreement, um, the agreement, I assume, is a joint statement. It's a joint statement by Canada and the United States in Section 232 duties. And um, Canada did not agree in there to prevent surges. It simply says in paragraph 5, in the event that imports of aluminum and steel products surge meaningfully beyond historic volumes of trade over a period of time, with consideration of market share, the importing country here, the U.S., may request consultations, and after consultations, the importing party may impose duties and so on. There's no obligation whatsoever on Canada to there to prevent the surge. So that wasn't an obligation of Canada. Also, as far as figures are concerned, if you look at there's one place there was a significant increase. And it's this particular product. It's it's uh, uh, it's unwrought um, aluminum. And uh, there was a significant increase if you take the 12-month period, uh, July 2019 through June 2020, over the corresponding period, um, corresponding the previous 12-month period. Uh, and it was fairly significant. The the, the difference was uh, roughly about 70. 9% more. Uh, that's in Canadian dollar terms. But um, if you look, go back a bit historically, um, I looked at uh, Canadian figure, at least figures for that particular product. Um, 2019 in U.S. dollar terms, it was about uh, 2.495 billion. 2018, 2.616 billion. These are our exports. In 2017, this is a number of years ago, is 3.247 billion. So these numbers, uh, actually in 2017, they were a lot higher than they were in 2019. To compare with 2020, I don't have the full year figures, but I think what the uh, uh, U.S. was able to do was to hit on a particular blip in um, in exports. And again, remembering Canada did not have an obligation to restrict, restrict imports. It was just something the U.S. could do if it so chose uh, if, uh, if, if, uh, if imports into the U.S. Uh, increased. So um, I think if you went back to the figures, it's it's a very imprecise agreement. It doesn't impose hard obligations. Remember that this is not part of Kuzma. Um, anyway, that's my view on it. I, um, there may have been a surge. There may have been a significant increase when you compare 
two particular periods for this particular product. But I wouldn't read much more into it than that. Very, very good. And, and Dan, you, so you've been around trade disputes for a long time. How, how do you read that question? Yeah, I read it the same way. I mean, I, I think the point is well taken. I mean, there is a blip, a bump, you know, what is a surge, right? And I think the other thing that's left largely undefined is what his historical average is. Um, the, the larger issue is, is frankly, we don't have a force majeure clause in there either, um, which we normally wouldn't have anyway. But, I mean, the reality is the reason why we're seeing a bump, the, the Canadian aluminum producer shifted instead of making um, value-added aluminum, um, which is used primarily in the auto industry and other areas, they started making unwrought aluminum, which is basically you can store it. It's an ingot, right? I mean, it's just a, it's a big packet of electricity is basically what it is. Um, and so that, you know, because you can't turn an aluminum smelter off. Um, so demand dropped during COVID and you can't turn a smelter off. Uh, you can't turn a steel mill off. You can't turn an oil refinery off, right? So you had to keep, and we ran into this mm-hmm. problem with COVID and with oil um, in the sense that um, you can't turn a refinery off. So we kept pumping it out, but there was no demand, but we had nowhere to store it. And so, you know, and that's the issue. There's a blip because of this emergency. The the, the agreement is poorly defined, um, and, and there was a reason for that, too. I don't want to belabor the point, but just keep in mind, we did this agreement last year or in, in, in the spring when um, um, the China deal fell through, right? I mean, this is before we had the Phase 1 China deal, and the day that that news broke, Mexico and Canada went to USTR and said, you got to – Chuck Grassley and said, you got a problem in farm country. Um, and the best way to help farm country right now is get USMCA, lift those steel and aluminum tariffs, and we'll end our retaliation against U.S. agricultural products. And so we quickly put this agreement together with an eye toward uh, we clean it up later, and, and we just didn't get there is the bottom line. And and so I, I, I think at the end of the day, it was a failure to get to a deal before it got this far. The industry should have worked together consistent with antitrust rules, of course, and, and come up with a solution to this problem, and we just didn't get there. Um, in enough time. And there is a small window to still try to get that deal. Uh, But unfortunately, I think the politics are going to take over and people are going to try to take a flyer. And we're going to go into the same self-licking ice cream cone that we get into all the time in Canada, U.S., where we're going to battle these things out when really the best course here is get a deal because that's where we're going to end up anyway. And I, I'll just add to that, and although I love the analogies to baseball and ice cream and beer, um, uh, and uh, you guys, I love hanging out with lawyers. You guys are so much more fun than economists. Um, the, um, but getting back to economics, I, mean, I will just add, and also to Mr. DeFrancesco, um, and with all due respect to the law, that's, that's all fine, all right, but, but, you know, but people trade, right, individuals trade. And the whole reason we set up these uh, agreements is to allow trade. When you, if we are going to have these these side agreements um, to our to our free trade agreements or trade agreements that says whenever there's a surge, then a country can impose tariffs. Then what's the point of having a trade agreement in the first place? Because the whole idea is. You know, remember Paul Krugman said, if a country wants to subsidize something and send it to you, the appropriate response is a thank you letter. Now, of course, we don't see many thank you letters in the real world, right? And I get that. But we have to keep in mind, though, that, you know, the market has its ups and downs. And if you're going to start to, you know, if you want to regulate 
what people can buy and sell from each other, you know, at a very near, in a, within a very narrow window, narrow range, that is regulated trade. That's over-regulation. That's managed trade. And that is not the American way. That's not the spirit of, of economic freedom in this country. And that is, that's not the way that our founding fathers envisioned things when they set up the GATT and the principles of the WTO. And that is not going to be the way forward to economic growth in this country. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Christine. We have another question, this time from the Wilson Center's own uh, Jack Lenore. Jackie, can I turn to you? Hi, yes. Um, so my question is, is um, if the slide letter allows a surge to mean that uh, the U.S. can put tariffs on Canada, uh, then it's sort of acting like a makeshift quota. Uh, should Canada be watching the steel numbers? Interesting question. So if there's a threshold level that's going to trigger a tariff anyway, is it a de facto quota? And, and does this bode ill for steel as well? Anyone want to feel that? Well, it's not good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it, 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 it isn't a quota situation. I mean, the way the, it's a tariff situation, and essentially under this joint statement uh, in uh, in 2019, the countries agreed to to uh, get rid of these tariffs. There were some caveats, and essentially what the agreement says: if if there are, if, if, if there are surges in certain, ill-defined, by the way, surges in the imports into the U.S. from Canada of of of, uh, of any certain commodity. Then the tariffs can be reimposed on that commodity. Um, quotas are an entirely different thing. Um, I think there were there were desire to have quotas at one point in time uh, in in. Um, and I think I think that was put forward by the U.S. Canada rejected it, but uh, essentially this was a deal in 2019 to take off the tariffs. There weren't conditions put on it, but also but on the other hand, there was a right to reimpose them. And curiously, kind of a sanction for Canada to retaliate. But it's it's not really a quoted situation. Essentially, it's a tariff situation. And now we have uh, 10% tariffs back on one particular category, albeit an important one of aluminum. How, um, Dan, uh, how does that look to you? Do you do you see the argument? Maybe uh, it may not be a quota per se, but um, have we set ourselves up for a conflict here? Well, I think I think the point is well taken, and I know Premier Ford of Ontario made the comment that. He was hearing rumblings about steel. I mean, once you define a surge a certain way, you better start start looking uh, at what other uh, other aspects of that agreement are covered. But but I do think it it, it kind of dovetailed off both the question and Christine's last comment. Um, you know, I'll leave my my both my professional and personal views out of this in terms of where we are. But we've been on the march to manage trade for a long time here, both in the Trump administration and probably before. Um, and, and I think we're going to continue on that march, um, just looking at the trade policies being advanced. We may not see a lot of new tariffs, but we're going to see a lot of behind-the-border by America and other types of issues. So I think while there's a good fight to be made on uh, free and fair trade, 
uh, I think people better buckle up. And if, if I, you know, looking at this from a Canada U.S. perspective, um, I would start looking at if we're going to have managed trade, let's make sure that we're in this together as opposed to going separate ways. And, and I think, let's face it, that's the very hard decision that our two countries are going to have to make. Um, we're either in this together vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Um, we're in this together potentially with the rest of with Mexico and, and vis-a-vis the rest of the world. But I just think that's where the politics are around the world. You look at Europe, you look at Asia, you look at um, post-COVID world as companies are rethinking supply chains. Uh, I just, uh, I, I, I'm not very optimistic that we're going to go back to the way it was um, or the trajectory that we were on before. I don't think the policies, the politics, and the practicalities are there. Um, and, and there's a way that I wish the world was, but there's a way that the world is right now. And from a Canada-U.S. perspective, I think we got to get in the boat together or, um, or we're going to, as I said, keep doing this over and over and over again and, and shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, thank you for that. And I think that's a, that's a great comment going forward. We may not have uh, given people much hope in this discussion over the past hour. We may not have solved any problems, but I think – Everyone listening, and certainly I feel, um, that we understand it a little bit better. And the stakes are high. It's not just a little. It's the entire trading relationship that in some ways is, and the way that we manage other disputes, hanging in the balance. And I want to thank all of our panelists for their insight and their time. Dan Yutso of Dickinson Wright, uh, John Johnson of the C.D. Howe Institute in Toronto, and Christine McDaniel from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, Thank you all. You've given us really a lot to think about. The Woodrow Wilson Center's Canada Institute uh, is is always fortunate as well. Not only do we have great friends to be speakers, but we have uh, great audiences. And I want to thank the questioners and uh, everyone who is listening. This recording will be up on our website so that you can tune in later or tell your friends. The best discussion on Aluminum Around is, uh, is available uh, online. Um, with that, Let me close this event. Thanks to everyone, and we hope to uh, follow this issue as it unfolds in the days and weeks to come. That concludes today's conference. You may disconnect at this time, and thank you for joining.